Welcome to The Commentary, a weekly conversation about vision, worship, and life at Grace Presbyterian Church. I'm Mark Bertrand, the pastor of Grace, and my fellow commenter in today's episode is Cameron Brooks. Together, we'll be talking about some music recommendations to enhance your Good Friday devotion, what the crucifixion and resurrection teach us about Christ's humiliation and exaltation, and why the Christian hope is not to spend eternity in heaven. We'll also ask what it is about Easter that speaks to every human heart. On April 15, 2019, the week after Easter, fire broke out in Notre Dame Cathedral in Paris. People gathered from all over the city and throughout the world to watch the flames, praying that the famous structure would not be consumed. That evening, I found myself here in Sioux Falls, inside another cathedral. The South Dakota Symphony String Quartet was performing Joseph Haydn's The Seven Last Words of Christ on the Cross. I had the honor of reading aloud the scripture passages for that performance. The thought of what was happening halfway around the world in Paris lent that night a feeling of sorrow, but also of beauty. The music you're hearing now is not from that concert. Rather, it's from the SDSO's performance from last weekend, which is still available to watch online. We'll link to the concert in this episode's show notes. Haydn's work is a wonderful resource for Christians who want to reflect on the meaning of Christ's crucifixion this Good Friday. There's another musical resource I want to recommend. This time last year, I partnered with Maestro Delta David Geyer to record a podcast about the music and theology of Bach's St. John Passion. The series was broadcast on public radio in the lead-up to Easter last year. But you can listen to the whole thing online at hearingthemusic.org. We'll put a link in the show notes for that, too. The arts have a way of expressing the kind of truth that is hard to capture through analytical means. Poetry does this through analogy, and music possesses a special power. As you reflect on Christ's sacrifice and what it means for you, I hope this music will draw you into a deeper state of devotion. In the last episode of The Commentary, we dug into the threefold office of Christ as it's taught in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. In the process, we saw that the Catechism mentions two states or estates of Christ. 
his humiliation, and his exaltation. I said then that we'd come back to those concepts later, but we're going to do that now, because as we remember the crucifixion and the resurrection this Good Friday and Easter, humiliation and exaltation are both themes we need to reflect on. So, question 27 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, Wherein did Christ's humiliation consist? And the answer is, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, and the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. So, Pastor Mark, it is Holy Week. We are remembering the death and the resurrection of Christ. So I think it is fitting, like we mentioned last week, to talk about the humiliation of Christ. I like how the Westminster Shorter Catechism defines the humiliation of Christ in a larger way. It's not just his death, but it's, in a sense, his whole life leading up to his death. What do you think we can learn from a larger view of Christ's humiliation here, rather than just thinking about it as the death on the cross? I remember when I was first introduced to the Westminster Shorter Catechism, this question actually was one of those mind-blowing things. I copied it out into my notebook, and it was precisely because of what you're talking about, Cameron, because when I thought about Christ's humiliation, which, frankly, I didn't think about that much, but when I did, it centered entirely on his passion, on his suffering at the cross. And so, when I heard the question, what does his humiliation consist in, that's immediately where I went. And of course, in fact, the shorter catechism gets there, but only at the end, you know, cursed death of the cross, being buried, continuing under the power of death for a time. Paradoxically, the, the, the catechism actually lists the, like the first example of his humiliation being his birth, mm -hmm. the incarnation. And we don't often think about the, the incarnation as the beginning of Christ's humiliation, but of course, this is God coming down and becoming human. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, that, that is the right way to think about it. And, and the fact that he is not just uh, any human, but, but a lowly one, you know, not high up on the social scale. It's not as if he was an appropriately elevated human being. He had a life in which he suffered, the catechism says, miseries. He underwent the wrath of God. And so all of these are examples of how Christ embraced humiliation. He lowered himself and, and humbled himself on our behalf. Now, because this episode is releasing on, on Good Friday, of course, it's appropriate for us, I think, to be thinking about the crucifixion. And the way that the crucifixion is a, let's say, part of and, and maybe can stand for the whole of Christ's humiliation. Mm -hmm. But it's helpful, 
I think, for us to, to recognize all of the incarnation, including the crucifixion, as Christ willingly humbling himself. And I think it's very helpful for us to reflect on that lowering, that humbling of himself at a time like this. Yeah, in the Gospels at one point, I think it's in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Jesus even says, for this purpose I came to to die, essentially. And it's it's fascinating to see his whole life as a humiliation leading up to this ultimate act of humiliation on the cross. You ask, or we ask, why why does Christ have to die? Why, why does Christ die? Um, he sees it as his reason for coming. So if that's where he's headed his whole life, it just makes sense that all of it is this, this act of, of humiliation along the way. Exactly. And when he talks that way, his disciples don't get it, mm-hmm. right? This makes them uncomfortable. And, and in Peter's case, of course, you know, he's, he's ready to fight mm-hmm. to a certain extent to prevent this death from taking place. And so his followers see death in what we might think of as, as a, the normal way, that, that it's something to be avoided, that Jesus should not be crucified, that he should, you know, somehow get out of that situation in order to live. And yet Jesus sees the trajectory of his ministry as leading to the cross. And it leads there through this series of humblings, Mm -hmm. you know, a a kind of lowering of himself. And along the way, uh, we could add other examples. I, I think of uh, the washing of his disciples' feet as a good example of Jesus intentionally lowering himself and, and also doing it specifically so that his followers understand that they have to go and do likewise. That if Christ's life is a trajectory of humbling, then the lives of his people should not only like tolerate humiliation, but on some level should welcome it, should expect it. Now, the other side of that is, you know, Jesus's ministry doesn't end with his humiliation, right? It continues on to his exaltation and there's a relationship between humiliation and exaltation. Humiliation leads to exaltation. So why don't you read us question 28? Wherein consisteth Christ's exaltation? Answer, Christ's exaltation consisteth in his rising again from the dead on the third day, in ascending up into heaven, in sitting at the right hand of God the Father, and in coming to judge the world at the last day. So yes, of course, Good Friday is the necessary precursor to Easter Sunday, which we will be celebrating here in a few days. But here again, it's not just the resurrection that is Christ's exaltation, but there's, there's more to it. We talked last time about authority, and I think that this is a good example of where the obedience of Christ in his humiliation is the gateway into his glory, his exaltation, and his taking on of the kingly authority that he was intended for. And so this answer reads a lot like a creedal statement, right? We're getting the, that 
list of things that Christ did. He rose again on the third day. He ascended up into heaven. He's seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I mean, Mm -hmm. this is almost a paraphrase of the Nicene Creed. And so I think that you see here um, uh, an outline of this bigger question of the the glory of Christ and how he's sort of acknowledged to be preeminent. And that's what exaltation means. So he's gone through his suffering and his humiliation. And at the end of that process, because of that obedience, he is crowned and exalted with a name above all names. And again, we see the relationship. He had to endure the humiliation in order to enter into the exaltation. They go together. So when we're thinking about Good Friday and the crucifixion, and as we reflect on that on this day, knowing that in two days' time, we will be celebrating the resurrection, we should remember that these two days mark this transition from humiliation to exaltation, from from pain and suffering to glory and and wearing the crown. And again, just as we saw in our last episode when we talked about the threefold office and how that provides a kind of template for the Christian life, humiliation and exaltation does exactly the same thing. If you want to know what the Christian life looks like, how it's structured, we live in hope of future glory. We live in hope of exaltation. And the path that takes us to exaltation is the path of humiliation, of humbling, of sacrifice and suffering. And so there's nothing surprising about it. There's nothing uh, when we suffer that should give us cause to wonder if something's going wrong, if God really loves us, any of those things. This is the path that leads to the promise. So humiliation and exaltation is not just the pattern of Christ's life, but in his life, his death, and his burial and resurrection, he's given us an example that we should aspire to. So I think it's helpful to think about the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ in two ways. One is this one that you're talking about as a model and a template. The other, though, is as the unique work of God on our behalf. So we could say that he accomplishes something for us, and then in doing that, he he sets a way of life before us as well. So we've talked a little bit about how, how that's supposed to be the model for our lives, which, by the way, I was thinking is is symbolized in baptism, this dying, you know, being submerged in the water, and then coming back up, rising with Christ, you know, symbolized there and then hopefully lived out throughout your life. That's the model. But what does Christ do uniquely for us in his dying and his rising that, that we can accomplish for ourselves? Does that make sense? Of course. Yeah. And I think it's, it's a good uh, distinction to make because of course the, the main point of the death of Christ is not to provide a moral example and not to give us sort of a, a text we can go back to when we suffer and say, Oh yeah, right. We were supposed to endure some Mm -hmm. humiliation the reason why Christ dies 
is the reason why he came in the first place. And it has to do with, as Matthew says, saving his people from their sins. The death on the cross, although viewed from a human standpoint, is essentially an unjust execution. From the God's eye point of view, it is a Passover sacrifice where Christ offers himself as the lamb is sacrificed and his blood atones for the sins of his people once and for all. And that's what's actually accomplished on Good Friday. It's the reason why we can call Good Friday good, Mm -hmm. because as much suffering as Christ endured, the end result of it was that we were freed from our bondage to sin and the consequences, the condemnation of sin. And so that is uniquely the work of Christ. And the reason why it's important to think of humiliation and exaltation as a kind of example for us to follow is is that there is no suffering and no work left for us to contribute Mm -hmm. to the atonement, right? If Christ has died to save you, you are saved. Your debt is paid. And all that is left is gratitude and a response of obedience. And so that's where uh, we get a promise, if we are in Christ, that we will be exalted. And in this life, the, the path that we follow is similar to the path that Christ took, and it's a path oftentimes of humiliation. What would you say is the meaning or the accomplishment of the resurrection? Sometimes in certain evangelical traditions, we tend to focus more on the cross because well, that's where my sins were paid for. That's where obviously something really big happened for my salvation. But growing up for me, at least the resurrection had more of a question mark. It was kind of like, well, it worked, you know, the death, the death of Christ worked and now he's back. But what does it, what does it really mean? What does it add? Well, I think you have to look at the way the disciples experienced both events. There was not a celebration following the crucifixion. They did not gather together to party and declare victory and that sort of thing. They were not, uh, although they were gathered together, they were not gathered together in anticipation of the resurrection. They weren't waiting the three days until Jesus returned. Uh, They definitely thought of the crucifixion as a defeat, as the frustration of their hopes. And so there is a legitimate sense in which you you can't really talk about crucifixion without resurrection because it's all part of the same work. And so what happens on the cross is the atoning sacrifice. The, the debt is paid. At the same time, death is a penalty for sin. Christ has committed no sin, and to borrow from John Owen in the death of Christ, Christ brings about the death of death. Mm -hmm. And so death is conquered there. So the significance of the resurrection is summed up in the words, the grave could not hold him. This signifies the defeat of our greatest foe. 
And it also signals for us the nature of what we could call the real Christian hope, like what the gospel really is. Speaking of which, I thought maybe we could pull in St. Athanasius again. He has a little book called On the Incarnation and speaks briefly about the meaning of the resurrection as well, the meaning of the death and the resurrection of Christ. And here's a quote that stuck out to me. For as seeds sown in the ground, we do not perish when we are dissolved. But as sown, we shall again rise. Death having been destroyed by the grace of the Savior. So, I suppose like you were just saying, the ultimate hope of Christ's resurrection is that we too will be resurrected. So that death yes. death is defeated, like you said, in the death of Christ. And in his resurrection, he brings us with him. So when when we die physically on this earth or when others in Christ die physically, they're like seeds sown in the ground, which dissolve in a sense, but yet because of the grace of the Savior, as Athanasius puts it, they will come back to life and with resurrected bodies. Right. And there Athanasius, of course, is using a biblical, a Pauline mm -hmm. metaphor and one that we are, it profits us to be reminded of because the the idea that we have of death is one of finality it's one of tragic sorrow defeat all of those things decay and when we bury the dead there's a sense of appropriate grief that accompanies that death is a is that a consequence of sin? It's part of living in a fallen world, but it's not good, and it's not something that we should embrace as part of nature, as just a, a, a sort of circle of life kind of thing. Like it's, it's necessary, I think, as human beings to revolt against the, the face of death. At the same time, what this metaphor suggests is that in the burying of the dead, what we're doing is something like planting seeds with the expectation that they will do what seeds do and they will grow. And if you remember, as we talked about in looking at, at Zechariah and uh, the prophecy of the branch in the coronation scene with the high priest Joshua, we're told this man is the branch and he will branch out and build the temple. And, and that word branch, again, it's in plain sight. This is a, a metaphor of growth, right? This is talking about an organic, uh, impossible to stop growth that takes place. But it takes place, as Paul and Athanasius point out, by means of what seems to us to be death, uh, the end. And so this is the way in which our lives are modeled for us in the life of Christ, because he too, of course, is not only crucified, but buried. And like a seed that has been planted, he erupts in life, and the grave cannot contain him. And what comes after is greater even than, than what went before. In one of the gospel accounts, I can't remember which now, the resurrection scene is taking place and Jesus appears to the women, and they mistake him for the gardener. 
And I think there's something rich there that Paul later on calls Jesus the first fruits of the new creation. And I don't know if that's an intentional kind of, you know, slip slipping something in that we're supposed to catch there. But it's fascinating to think of the the resurrection of Christ overcoming death so that our deaths are now like seeds planted in the earth and they mistake him to to be this gardener. I had a creative writing professor once who said the author gets credit for everything that's in the text. And so I think even those, those uh, moments where you feel like you're really straining uh, if the interpretation is available and legitimate, I think it's intended. And in that case, I love the idea, not only that, that they believe that Jesus is the gardener, but that the place that they've gone to is a place where a gardener would be expected to be, which gives kind of a sense of, of again, like uh, a sort of tabernacled burial site, uh, rich in layers of meaning. For years in my lectures at Worldview Academy, I've been shocking students by announcing that they will not spend eternity in heaven. Most people, including very knowledgeable Christians, believe that's exactly what the Bible teaches. If we die in Christ, our spirits leave our bodies to go to heaven for eternity. But as we reflect on the resurrection, it's important to remember that this is not the promise of the gospel. Jesus' resurrection points to something very different. Cameron, we alluded to this already, and you alluded to it as well in a word that you used earlier, first fruits. But I just want to be sure we spend a little bit of time and make this very, very clear because it's a great misconception that many Christians have that the gospel promises that when we die, if we believe in Christ, our spirits will leave our bodies and they will go to live in eternity in heaven with the Lord. So that's not the case. That's, that's not at all what the gospel is promising. But it, it, it would be good for us to, to say what it is that the gospel is promising. So when you look at the resurrection of Jesus, what does that say about the Christian hope? The word first fruits helps. I think another phrase is new creation. So sometimes we talk about the whole story of the Bible, like creation, fall, and redemption. And we stop there. But other scholars have have helped me see we really need to add on new creation after redemption. So if the work of Christ on the cross and and the resurrection is redemption of sorts, new creation is really what's happening after that. This reminds me that God doesn't want to abandon his initial creation, either the physical world or us. But wants to redeem it, restore it, and make it new. And I think this is what Paul means when he says Christ is the first fruits of this this new thing that's happening in the resurrection of Christ. Right. So Paul, when he describes the death of Christ and Christ's suffering, the reason why he can be so positive about them is he sees a kind of 
uh, reciprocal relationship. Like if we have suffered with Christ, if we have died with Christ, then we will live with him, right? So in the simplest terms, if Jesus is the first fruits, that means Jesus's resurrection is the beginning of something that we're looking forward to seeing in a much bigger way. So if Jesus was raised from the grave and was physically embodied, like still incarnate, still touchable. He had a glorified body. It differed in some ways from from what had gone before, but he was himself. He was embodied. Then we too look forward to a similar resurrection and embodiment. So we're not going to spend eternity as disembodied spirits. Our bodies will be raised. Bodily resurrection is the hope of the Christian gospel, and that has big implications. You, you mentioned one, which is that creation is not abandoned and destroyed, but is actually restored. So the world is ultimately going to be made right. There will be a new creation, and we'll be living in that new creation, fulfilling our human-created purpose, because we too will have been restored. So the idea of disembodiment and the idea of uh, floating on a cloud, strumming your harp, that sort of thing, goes hand in hand with uh, the idea that, that the world is bad, that it needs to just be destroyed, that the body is bad, and that things related to the body are inherently bad and corrupt, so that you will encounter Christians who act as if bodily stuff is somehow evil, gross, and and sinful. And, and they never stop to ask themselves, if that's the case, how could Christ, who was fully human and had a, a real human body, have been sinless? Right? So we know by the very fact of incarnation that to be embodied is not bad, that it's, it's good. Otherwise, how could Christ not only have, have done it, but continue to be embodied, to continue to be fully human as we've just seen he he is and he is seated at the right hand of the father and making intercession for us and so every easter this is important but but this easter one of the things we would urge you to reflect on is that this is an event the resurrection of jesus which has a direct promise in it for you if you are a believer in jesus christ you will die but you will be raised again. You will be humiliated, but you will be exalted and you will be restored. My wife has quite a few health issues related to her diet and they cause her a lot of stress. Every now and then when they get really obnoxious, she'll say to me, I just want a new body. She has said that several times and I don't think she's being theological or anything, but I always look at her and say, you will have a new body because of the promise of the gospel. We all will have not just a, a nice place up in the clouds, but a resurrection body, whatever that means, um, something better than this. This restored us for sure, but better. Right, right. And I think that aspiration, like the, to have a new body is, is a very different kind of hope than to not have a body. You know, that disembodied thing. I always think of the old uh, arcade fire song. You know, my body is a cage that mm -hmm. keeps me from dancing with the one I love. That they have like the physical as, as a hindrance 
that needs to be overcome so that the spiritual, which is what is really good, can thrive. And that's not Christian theology. That's Greek philosophy mm-hmm. that was borrowed early on and has, has had a long and, uh, and detrimental impact on a lot of Christian thinking. But, but one thing we can embrace this Easter is the fact that our, our physical selves, our bodies, will be restored. And all of the effects of sin that we see around us, uh, which death kind of summarizes, but it's, it's more than just physical death, all of those will be reversed in that work of grace which Christ began on the cross. And so we're not just looking back and commemorating great events in Christian history when we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. We are clinging to promises that directly impact our lives and our lives to come. This quotation from Marilyn Robinson has fascinated me ever since I read it. Churches fill on Christmas and Easter because it is on these days that the two most startling moments in the Christian narrative can be heard again. In these two moments, narrative fractures the continuities of history. It becomes so beautiful as to acquire a unique authority, a weight of meaning history cannot approach. What gives these stories their power? They tell us that there is a great love that has intervened in history, making itself known in terms that are startlingly and inexhaustibly palpable to us as human beings. I think she's right. When we celebrate Christ's incarnation at Christmas or his death and resurrection at Easter, we rejoice in the intervention of love into the ordinary flow of fallen human history. Left to run its course, our history would dead end in destruction. The glory is that death doesn't get the last word. That's all the time we have for the commentary this week. On behalf of Cameron and myself, let me wish you a blessed Good Friday and Easter Sunday. May your meditation and your worship and your celebration draw you closer to Christ. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll join us next time. In the meantime, please share the commentary with your friends online or through word of mouth. And if you haven't already, you can subscribe to The Commentary on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. To find out more about us online, visit graceforsufalls.org.